This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Zambia in 1969, six years after the country gained independence. Growing up her parents and sister, the family moved briefly to the States before she returned to study chemistry at the university. Following an attempted coup, the schools closed and my guest won a scholarship to study in the States. Here she went on to work at the World Bank as a consultant. She continued her studies in economics and at Harvard, then a PhD at Oxford University. After academia, she returned to banking, this time for the private sector at Goldman Sachs. Now, my guest sits on the board of numerous companies and has written five books, starting with Dead Aid, Why Aid Is Not Working, and How There Is Another Way for Africa, to her most recent one, Edge of Chaos, Why Democracy Is Failing to Deliver Economic Growth and How to Fix It. Just last year, she received a life peerage and now sits in the House of Lords. My guest today is Baroness Dambisa Moyo. So thank you very much for coming into the office today, Dambisa. We ask everyone on this podcast the same question to begin with, which is, was yours a happy childhood? Thank you very much for including me and hosting me here today. Yes, my childhood was incredibly happy. I am the first of four children. We had the good fortune of having two parents who were very avant-garde um, for their time period. We were being born in born and raised in Zambia, in Southern Africa, but uh, my, both my parents went to university, they met at university, and they, in many ways firebrands because they were sort of the first wave of uh, Africans post-independence, uh, post-colonial era, so into independence. So yes, very, very lively family interactions on economics and politics. I went to a Catholic boarding school, I'm sure you can tell, and uh, you know, loved playing tennis, uh, had lots of family, very close family interactions, uh, and uh, those remain today. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you were initially in Zambia, and then you moved over to the States for a few years. What was that transition like? So um, my father really was the, drove that process because he went to pursue a PhD in the United States at the University of Wisconsin, and so the family followed uh, followed him there. I was very young. Uh, my memories are it being incredibly cold um, because we were in the middle of America at that time. But in many ways, it was uh, my first eight years of life, having been born in Zambia, but really early primary school uh, in the United States. And uh, you know, I still consider my formative years to have been in Africa because um, we moved back to Zambia when I was around eight years old. And what was the political scene like at that point? I mentioned in the introduction, of course, there was an attempt to coup, but I suppose when you first returned, um, can you talk us through what it was like at that point? Yes, so Zambia achieved independence in 1964, and really from the time of independence in 1964 through to 1991, we had a one-party state, and so we had really one president. For 27 years, it was the same president, President Kaunda. Kenneth Kaunda. Many people actually recognize him beyond the the borders of Zambia. I mean, he was definitely a global statesman of his time, uh, spent quite a bit of time with Her Majesty the Queen, but also um, became head of the non-aligned states um, when there was a lot of tensions with Cold War between uh, sort of the West and the uh, more communist states. But beyond that, really, it was a time where there was a lot of upheaval in terms of previously colonial states gaining in independence. 
there were a lot of discussions about uh, political systems, whether or not your countries should be autocratic or democratic. And as I said, we I was raised in a one-party state. Also, being in Southern Africa at that time, Zambia was unique in that there were not many other countries in the region that were independent. So Angola, Mozambique were still under Portuguese rule uh, when I was growing up. That changed in 1975. Zimbabwe was under uh, it was Rhodesia until 1980. And then, of course, South Africa until 1994. So really, my childhood was, um, you know, we had curfews. We all had to be home by 6 o'clock in the evening. But it was re it remained very positive and very engaged. Um, but really, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, there was a, a lot of change, not just in Africa, but around the world. And you started off studying chemistry. Yes. Talking to an arts graduate over here. <laughs> were you, did you always have quite like a scientific maths mind when you were growing up? Uh, do you think that got, you got that from your parents? So yes, definitely a much more of a, a numbers girl. I prefer specific closed form modeling. I don't like ambiguity or interpretation of things that may not be on a piece of paper or can't be derived from first principles. And so I've always... From a young age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've always been somebody who, um, and this is definitely, I'm definitely my parents' child because my parents, uh, my mother who's a banker, my father who was an, an academic were very um, sort of forceful about making sure that arguments um, were very clear and were well substantiated. So very data driven, the numbers don't lie was sort of a mantra in our family household. I, you know, it's funny, my parents are still alive and I, I think I should update them in, the, in a world where truth is, uh, is now apparently ambiguous. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how they would have raised us in this environment, but they were definitely uh, very much uh, drove us into thinking, being critical thinkers and really using data as supporting evidence. In what way do you think truth is ambiguous now? Well, just in general, um, you know, statements like, you know, it's my truth or my interpretation of, you know, of things. I, I, it's, it's obviously I'm in the wrong generation because uh, I, I really am uh, swayed by scientific evidence. And that's really underscored and underlined by my, uh, my undergraduate degree in chemistry. Yeah. My truth doesn't also pass my <laughs> philosophy training. Yes, <laughs> the logic exactly. modules would not have allowed it. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, there was an attempted coup, and yes. at that point, school started to close, and you won a scholarship to study in America. Was there a point when you thought you might not be able to study full stop? Yes, I mean, there's certainly, it wasn't um, automatic. The coup was um, in July, if my recollection serves me well, um, and I only went back to mm. studies in January. So for some time, I was out of school, um, waiting to to get more visibility about whether the university was going to open, whether there was going to be a sort of a reset uh, and return to calm in the country. But, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, the trigger for the uh, demonstrations and for the, for the attempted coup were uh, subsidies, food prices. So it's, it's very, in some sense, reminiscent of the aspects of, and issues we're dealing with today, that food prices have gone up, energy prices are up. Um, and that had actually been a big driver to, that led to the university to close down. So, um, you know, I guess I had always hoped I could go back to school, but it wasn't obvious when I would go back to school. The university did not open, uh, certainly by the time I was leaving, to, I had to figure out another option. And so my option was to leave to go and complete my studies in the U.S. And did you have some friends who just didn't get to complete their studies? Not to my knowledge. I mean, yeah. the university in Zambia did subsequently open about yeah. uh, a year later from, the, from that period. Um, and, and most of my friends did complete their studies. I think education was paramount and remains that um now you you go to america and you study and you land your first job at quite a young age at the world bank <laughs> yes. um 
there's a reputation, of course, for, you know, brutal hours, working conditions. What was it like? So I'm in my 50s now and I look back and I thought, my God, I was so naive. I was 23. I was armed with my uh, undergraduate degree from American University. I got my job at the World Bank. And I was just so bloody arrogant in many respects. I arrived thinking, you're welcome, I'm here. I'm here to sort of solve the world's problems. And, um, you know, I just assumed with my degree, but I also had completed an MBA in finance, that somehow I was, the doors were going to open and I was going to somehow have this amazing career without really having to do anything more. I was, you know, sort of waiting for my engraved invitations. And I look back now um, in how wrong I was. I mean, the best thing that happened was that I got, uh, you know, sort of shaken out of my, my sort of hallucination by people who are older and they're like, what are you doing here? You're 23, but you know, this is a place for more seasoned professionals, you know, dealing with more complex issues who would have really, would have varied experiences. You don't go to the World Bank as, you know, 23. And I appreciate that a lot because I really enjoyed working there. And to this day, issues of growth, uh, economic growth and poverty and issues of, of uh, technology and its impact on development, etc., still define the, the where I spend my time thinking about investing into the future and questions around energy transition are all about human progress. And that is absolutely how I've decided to devote my my life. But at that time, I was so naive to think that um, with my degrees, I was equipped to offer a perspective. At that time, I had not traveled widely. I now have been had the good fortune to travel to over 80 countries, you know, rich, poor, developed, developing, autocratic and uh, democratic. But at that time, I just did not have that experience of life to really really offer anything uh, that I would consider constructive. Um, now, you study a PhD at Oxford University. Yes. And after completing your studies, you write your first book. Yes. So at that point, you, you do have uh, plenty to say. I do. <laughs> and that's um, Dead Aid. Can you just uh, tell listeners who have not yet read it, but who are surely about to after this podcast, <laughs> uh, what the main thesis is? Um, yes. So just to put it in context, um, I actually graduated my doctorate at Oxford, and then I went to work in the city of London. I was working at Goldman Sachs. And it was interesting looking around the trading floors at Goldman Sachs and saw I saw so much representation from people from around the world, particularly from countries in the emerging markets, people from Argentina, from Thailand, from China, etc. And there just wasn't the, the sort of similar scale of representation from Africa. And I thought this is really odd. You know, how is it possible that they're not more Africans? I started thinking a lot about my upbringing and the debates I had with my family. And essentially, out of those musings came this book, Dead Aid. The argument really was that um, aid, and I'm not talking about emergency aid if there's a flood or an earthquake, and I'm not talking about uh, NGO aid where we send money to, to build a well. I'm talking about systemic amounts of aid that go from government to government or from multilateral institutions to governments. Um, actually, despite good intention that those amounts, enormous amounts of money that have topped a trillion uh, dollars uh, over the last uh, several uh, decades actually were doing more harm than good. Despite our intentions and despite efforts, it was creating inflation, it was creating what's called Dutch disease, so it was causing an appreciation of the local currency, which was killing off the trade markets. It was creating dysfunction in the relationship, the democratic relationship between the citizens in these 
recipient, the, the poor countries and their governments. The government didn't need to respond to its local citizenry because all they needed to do was to court and cater to the needs of the donors, who had a very different uh, motivation and their own reasoning. There were a whole host of other issues, and of course, it, it was leading to corruption. And this is not just me cooking up the evidence in my kitchen. I mean, the World Bank itself had published many reports talking about the corrupting nature uh, of aid flows. And so I decided that, you know, not, there wasn't it wasn't an agenda to just identify the problem. I thought it was really important for us to say, well, here are the, here's a list of problems that are emanating from this largesse, but what can we do about it? And so the second half of the book was really outlining really systemic ways in which to support development in a credible and sustained way. So that was really what the book was about. It Who knew that that would be controversial? <laughs> you take my next question. It proved quite controversial. Funny that. <laughs> and, and, you know, among the critics, you had Bill Gates. Um, I think that he said that he suggested at least parts of the book were promoting evil. Um, what was your reaction when you saw that? I mean, it's your first book. I mean, you come across a very confident person, but, were you, you know, when you have someone so established coming for you, how does it feel? Well, I think there was a, certainly a lot of disappointment, and I put out a statement to reflect that, because I think that for too long, and it's not just in the issues of economic growth and development, but for too long, people who don't live those real circumstances think that they have the answer despite the evidence of multiple decades that Africa was failing, it was regressing, it was not part of the sort of globalization and the sort of economic progress in other regions. And rather than say, hmm, I don't a priori agree with you, but I'm curious why you would think that. And let's look at the, the you know, counterpoints. Let's look at the, the, the sort of uh, pros and cons of your argument to just from the hip, shoot from the hip and make these types of statements, I think was quite underwhelming in terms of where you think people at a certain level of intellect might be. Um, now, the good news is that we, uh, we took the, he and I took the gloves off. Uh, we did have a meeting. Uh, I think he was a bit perhaps surprised that I wasn't a shrinking violet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of great work that he's done. And really what I was saying to him is that he should be channeling that and he should want to channel that, all those efforts in a way that is uh, sensible. And that, you know, if you hear a critique, like any other business or any other question that we're dealing with in the world, you want to know the pros and cons and, and come up with the best solution. So um, in any case, it was very, it was a very uh, lively debate. I think the problem with uh, the issues of, of Africa specifically, but development in general, is that we do have a lot of ideological beliefs China is a good example of that, which we can talk about. But I think we live in a world where people solidly believe in what's right and what's wrong. And maybe in some issues of economics in particular, the answer is not so clear. One of the things uh, on that perhaps is uh, you've been talking about uh, the importance of economic growth. And I wondered, I mean, with the Silicon Valley bank crisis, you suggested the politicians should avoid the temptation to pile on more regulation. And this is the last prime minister but one <laughs> but over in the uk we recently had the liz trust premiership mm -hmm. a brief period yes. um but growth was a very key aspect of it but yet after the mini budget because that misfired so much i think you know growth has become almost a bit of a loaded term i think in in, in politics <laughs> over in the uk where, where both you know rishi sunak's talking about growth keir starmer's talking about growth but 
I don't know, it, it feels as though there's more scepticism about how you actually get there than before. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what you think. Do, do you think some of those trusses arguments, you think about lower regulation and things, were, had merit even if the um, execution mm-hmm. left quite a bit to be desired? Yeah, I think that, um, so first of all, at a very high level, I think ideology is the enemy of growth. And I say that because I think too often we say, gosh, this economy, not just the UK, but the world economy needs to be growing by 3% per year if we're going to double per capita incomes in a generation, which is 25 years. And that's just a rule of thumb to say, in 25 years, are we going to be improving? Will, Will society be better? terms of health and education access, better infrastructure, better living standards. If we want to do that, we need to have 3% growth. Now, the problem, even though sensible people can agree that growth is important, the question, as you rightly say, is how do you get it? And I think too often there's not a lot of clarity on uh, on how we're going to execute. And so in the case of, uh, of uh, Liz Truss, I do think it was unfortunate because I think her fundamental point about the need for growth is not something that I would challenge, and certainly, as you say, both Keir Stammer and, uh, and uh, Rishi Sunak are saying the same thing, that growth is important. But you're also right that you need to bring people along. You need to be very clear about what levers we have in society to actually effect or to, to get those, uh, the, the growth agenda moving. At a very simplistic level, growth is driven by three things. Capital, how much money you have, so do you have debt or too much d- deficit? Labor, the quality and the quantity of your workforce, and then productivity. How efficient are you at converting capital and labor? Um, We know that right now we're in a tight capital situation because we've had the pandemic, we've had Brexit, a lot of issues that have essentially led us to a lot of debt, both in the public coffers but also household coffers. We know that the labor markets are challenged, both in terms of skilled workers. I mean, I listen to academics, but also business leaders, very worried about the, the skills issues. And of course, we're talking when I'm about to go to the Lords for the immigration debate, you know, how should we be thinking about the, the, the number of people coming into the country? Is that a supporting aspect to growth? And then on productivity, the thing that uh, I think is really important is to remember that Roughly 60% of why one country grows and another one doesn't is because of productivity. So productivity is more important than capital and labor, and yet productivity has declined, not just in the UK, but in developed countries over the past decades. And this is a puzzling question that we continue to debate. Why am I saying this? Because these are the sorts of conversations we need to have. We are living in a technological era, in precisely the era which should enhance our ability to convert capital and labor into growth, and yet productivity is declining. Why might that be the case? Um, How can government be uh, much more front-footed about delivering growth outcomes? I will say, and I I mentioned this in my maiden speech in the House of Lords, that I think there there is some low-hanging fruit. I think having burdensome regulation plus a high tax environment is not a formula for success. Uh, and you know, notwithstanding that in the here and now there might be good reasons to have high taxes or good reasons to have regulation, the fact that the UK is competing globally 
um, with other regions of the world in a very heated com you know, competition. Even our allies, uh, the United States launching the IRA, um, you know, is something that many have argued was actually not very, it was kind of friendly fire. Um, and you start to think, well, that means we really do need to be much more aggressive about these policies on regulation, on taxes, and coming up beyond just risk mitigation, leaning into investment to think about how we're going to drive capital, labor, and productivity. Yeah, it does feel from, I suppose, my main job of covering politics that whoever wins the next election, which will be next year at some point, unless they really try and push it to January 2024, which would be very brave, um, <laughs> that we are not about to move to a low-tax model really over here. I think the jury's out, it might, is my sense. So, you know, there's a scenario that, um, and, and I say it's a scenario because it's not sort of a tail conversation. I'm hearing it more and more, people who are sensible saying, you know what, I can kind of see a world where inflation comes down. You start to perhaps see interest rates start getting cut. Um, and actually at this point, the government would have built up some of its coffers, maybe through some of the taxes that they're imposing on the energy sector or some of the stuff that they're getting from, um, from other sectors, I can see them deciding spring budget of 2024, we're going to, you know, to give a tax cut. I, I'm not, I'm not yeah. involved in the weeds, but I'm just saying oh, it's no, too I, soon yeah, yeah, for yeah. me to count yeah. it out. Oh, of course, I think spring yeah. budget tax cut, for sure. You just wonder once it's, the tax burden's got so high. <laughs> I suppose it's, it's going in a direction at that point. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But I just think, I mean, I, I think anything can happen. I mean, yeah. I never predicted, although I did in 2018, <laughs> I did say, hmm, maybe we're due for a pandemic. I never, yeah, I'm not a deep scientist on it, but uh, there you go. We had a pandemic. I actually decided oh, I, in 2016 was certain we were not going to have uh, a vote on Brexit and even more certain that we were not going to leave the EU. And look what happened. So, you know, um, a friend of mine who's 85 years old always says the one thing I can com convince you, uh, I should convince you of is that you're always going to be surprised. And I think that's right. I've been thinking so Silicon Valley Bank was going to happen. Here we are. So we are always going to be surprised. Anything can happen. Having covered British politics for the last couple of years, I very much agree with that. That is all we know is surprises will always come. Absolutely. Um, now, just a few final questions. You um, mentioned then that you've recently joined the House of Lords. Yes. How are you finding it? Uh, ultimately, scrutinising the legislation. Yes. Um, uh, what have been your impressions? So I love it. But then again, I loved being at Goldman Sachs. And so I think um, some people would probably gasp uh, at, at, at such admissions. But um, in the House of Lords, I'm surrounded by just phenomenal Rolls-Royce minds. My introducer is Baroness Manningham Buller, who ran MI5. I defer to her when I, and I, you know, hold my breath when people like her are speaking on security issues. The House of Lords has got representatives, uh, peers from, from Supreme Court, um, when they talk about legality and legal issues, again, you can't not be impressed. Um, you know, everyone from different parts of the of the political spectrum, former uh, politicians and uh, policymakers. Uh, I was just looking at Ken Clark yesterday, and across the way was uh, was uh, David Blunkett. I mean, there's serious conversations um, being had by serious people, and I think that to me is exactly where I want to be. I think it's very easy to find yourself in a place where the people aren't serious about these issues or serious issues aren't being discussed. I couldn't ask for anything more than to be in that room. And for me, it's it's been an amazing gift. There are, there's been a bit of a row recently about the future of the House of Lords, yes. um, partly because uh, there's 
the churn of multiple prime ministers means you have lots more resignation honours list mm-hmm. and of course you're not a politically appointed peer um, but do you worry that um, you know that you could that ultimately we could come to a situation where the where the House of Lords no longer looks as it does, um, and, and you're talking about yeah. kind of the great minds who are there, but yeah. of course the criticism is you might have some people who are perhaps less well well experienced in life entering the House of Lords. Yeah. So look, I I'm I'm a newbie. I just I just was introduced in <laughs> December, so it's only been you know, six months thereabouts. Um, I think there's organizations always have room for improvement. So, you know, and, and I don't think I'm saying anything sort of shocking. I think across the political aisle, everyone says there's a lot of room for improvement. I think there are about 700 peers now. Um, my understanding is about 400 of them, 400 of them are active. There's there's scope to, to create, you know, retired peers or some kind of program. And those are, 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 some of them are in place, but I think there's a lot more room there. The final question of this podcast is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And of course it may be that you've given it and you just didn't listen to it the worst advice gosh that's a great question um i you know it has to be that only the advice that only your work product or your work output matters that that's the only thing that matters there's no doubt in my mind that having a high quality well delivered quickly delivered high product quality product is minimum it's sort of uh, sort of baseline requirement but the more that i pass through life the more i realize being somebody that people want to work with helps a lot if you're kind of considered inconsiderate you know brash you can be critical and i think that's a, a lost art because i do think we all need critical feedback to get better but I think um, if you're kind of considered what Americans would call a jerk, then I think it doesn't matter how smart and brilliant you are. I think that is um, a mess. So I had been given advice that oh, everything else doesn't matter. All you need to do is produce an A-quality product. I think it, you need the A-quality product, but you also really need to be somebody people want to work with. Thank you, Demis, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.